Welcome to the FedSpeak podcast brought to you by M&I Market News. I'm Greg Quinn in Ottawa. With me today is Bill White. His resume is long and impressive with uh, major positions at the OECD, uh, the Bank for International Settlements. Uh, he also had a stint uh, as a Canadian working at the Bank of Canada, doing some advisory work for the Finance Minister and Statistics Canada. So, Bill, thank you very much for, for being here. Well, it's a pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. Well, let's let's jump into it. I have seen you argue that an era of uh, global real economic shortages may be coming, even as the Chinese economy reopens, and along with that, perhaps more long-lasting inflation pressure. Can you describe more why you think that's the kind of backdrop we're going to be seeing in the global economy? You've made reference to both supply side issues and uh, and um, you know inflation demand side issues. The, the thing to remember is it's a combination of the two, demand and supply, that uh, is going to generate or could generate future inflationary pressures. And I guess the, the general point that I've been making over the course of the last little while is that um, we're, we're going from an era of plenty to uh, an era of shortages. And what I mean by the shortage part is that I don't have much trouble in seeing uh, potential problems on the supply side going forward. And I have no difficulty in seeing sources of increased demand, particularly investment demand. And so when you put those two things together, uh, sort of renew, reduce supply potential, but increased need for investments, uh, it seems to me that um, it's by no means obvious that you would rule out an inflationary future and of course, an inflationary future that would likely have to be met with higher real interest rates. So that's that's basically what I see happening. There's one element here that ha had a lot of discussion as the pandemic broke open was on labor supply. Uh, I remember people at the beginning were quite worried about the concept of scarring, that people would lose their skills Um and a lot of jobs would be automated away. In in other words, you know, workers might be the ones kind of taking it on the chin. In, instead, during the recovery now, a lot of discussion has been record job vacancies, record low unemployment, and the potential for workers to get wage gains to catch up with inflation. This, you know, central banks also have to set policy based on what their view of what labor supply might be. So where is this actually going to end up? Let's let's just sort of go back to the broader question of the pandemic. All downturns have scarring effects, and there's a, a growing literature on this. And Alan Taylor, I would just say, you know, from from University of California Davis, is a noted economic historian. He he says that all, all downturns have scarring effects, but he thinks that the implications of the recent development not just the great financial crisis, but the, the COVID pandemic as well, are likely to have star, scarring effects that are significantly greater than anything that we've seen before. And when you think about those scarring effects, uh, one thing I guess you'd point out is lots of people decided to leave the labor force uh, because life became, uh, as it were, more, more precious. We've had a reduction in the participation rates uh, in the US and in the UK in particular. A lot of people now starting to give signs of long COVID, mental problems that are associated with having been locked up for such a long period of time. So there's a lot of hysteretic effects coming out of the pandemic itself. In addition, what's going to be a longer term effect of the pandemic has been the recognition that the 
supply lines are not resilient. And so there's going to be a long running effect of, of that as the supply structures change. So, and then of course there's China. It's the, the last thing where they're still sort of coming out of the COVID thing. And nobody's very clear about exactly how, how that's going to work. Anyway, all to make the point, there's, there's longer run implications of the pandemic as such. And then you have to start thinking about the longer term factors of production to which you're alluding, talking about labor. And there, I think my old friend and colleague, Charles Goodhart, and his colleague, uh, Pradhan, uh, they wrote a book here in 2019 that was remarkably prescient. Uh, the book was called The Great Demographic Reversal. And it basically pointed out the fact that the baby boomers are, are mostly out of the workforce. Then you start looking at the Asian economies that have sort of that powered the sort of the, 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 the big uh, increases in, in, in GDP prior to the global financial crisis. China's population is in absolute decline. The number of workers in Korea and Japan has been falling for, for years and years. So from the perspective of labor going forward, uh, we face a big problem. And, and that's not the only thing when you think about going forward, climate change. I don't think climate change is getting anywhere near the kind of, given anywhere near the kind of importance in our economic forecast as it should be. Because any way you look at climate change, whether it's going to be mitigation, which is going to involve all sorts of stranded assets because you can't use fossil fuels anymore, or adaptation, which basically means living with the consequences of climate change, which is going to be destroyed ports, destroyed capital structure, you know, all of the problems associated with that, violent weather events, et cetera, et cetera. So climate change is going to be another huge problem. I'd like to pick up on what you said about climate change. In some ways, I've seen officials at the Federal Reserve and the Bank of Canada say, look, this isn't necessarily within our mandate or climate change is not something we can account for within a traditional time range monetary policy is control over. Officials in Europe have been more vocal about dealing with, with climate change. But I, I do wonder, is that a problem to have um, central banks not talking too much about climate change? Well, absolutely. I mean, the, the the point that I would make is that if we're entering into a world where there's going to be constrained supply, the thing to remember, too, is that in coping with that constrained supply, there are implications about the need for much heavier investment. You're going to need investment in capital to replace workers that are not there. You're going to need huge amounts of investment to deal with the commodity problem that I've just been talking about. Climate change, when you think about, we've got to read, we've got to rejig the entire energy production system. The amount of investment that will be required to do that is going to be very great. So now in a sense, there's nothing that monetary policy as such can do about these longer run secular events, but monetary policy will have to be conducted in the context of, of recognizing these things are happening. And I guess what I'm saying is that the pressure in the world that I see is going to be one for higher nominal, higher real interest rates, and of course, higher nominal interest rates. 
And that's something that the central banks really must recognize. And one of the worries that I do have, given that the period that we've just come through, let's let's just go back to the workers. We've just come through a 20 or 30 year period of baby boomers in the workforce, plus all of the added labor being supplied by China and Eastern Europe coming back into the global marketplace. Okay, all of that stuff was disinflationary. And the central banks, in my view, totally ignored those underlying secular trends that that were all acting in the direction of disinflation and wanting the prices to go down. And they reacted against it in, by ultra low interest rates and easy money that in a way have created the problems that we're currently facing at the moment of debt overhang, et cetera, et cetera. So it is important that the central banks at least recognize these underlying problems to which they will have to either give resistance or not. So I think that the central banks uh, will be facing a pressure to allow higher real rates and therefore nominal interest rates will have to go up. And the worry that I have, uh, really running off the idea that these these guys are not... Um, um, not immune to making errors. My real worry is that they will not recognize what needs to be done and will get even further behind the curve. And there's lots of reasons why, frankly, given the starting point, why central banks might be quite reluctant to allow nominal interest rates to rise and therefore interest rates to rise to the levels that are required. The argument I've I've heard so far is you know we we central banks know how to deal with inflation when it's high um you know raising interest rates is a lot easier than dealing with inflation that it's low with what you're saying is there a legitimacy to that argument could they just raise interest rates and then deal with it or are you suggesting that this change is going to require a rethink of underlying things like the 2% inf- inflation target or basically the the playbook they have now for dealing with inflation now, what i'm suggesting and it it may go back to the question of the targets as well what i'm suggesting is that nominal rates have to go up uh in the light of these supply demand imbalances secular problems that i'm talking about but that there are significant impediments now to central banks allowing the nominal rates to move up. And one of the the principal worries that I have is the fear of financial instability associated with higher real interest rates. And the reason why I fear that higher, that financial instability is that because of past central bank policies, okay, which has been ultra easy money, really for for decades. I mean, I think it was excessively easy before the great financial contraction. And in fact, that's what contributed materially to the great financial contraction. And it's now got much worse since we've had another 10 or 12 years of ultra easy monetary policy. So we have a world in which there has been so much debt built up 
that there's a real exposure now to higher real interest rates. And when you think about it, the, the, the debt exposure is on both the private side and on the public side. And this is where it starts to get a bit complicated because if you have a lot of private sector debt and you get higher interest rates, there's a lot of private sector entities that won't be able to cope with that and they will go bankrupt. And this is going to be a fundamentally deflationary force. However, we also have a huge overhang of government debt, okay, where the debt levels now are up to 100% and more. So the problem with that is that as the interest rates go up on government debt and government debt service, you start to realize that many of these debts, with the debt service added on, in some longer run sense, are no longer sustainable. And historically, and I mean, this is the way it works, if governments find that they've got debts that they can't service appropriately through austerity or through efficiencies or some other fashion, the answer is always just print the money. So that if you've got excessive private sector debt, you can see the the dangers of deflation If you've got excessive public sector debt, you can see the dangers of inflation. And it's anybody's guess in a way about how those two things are going to work out. My own personal view would be higher interest rates will cause problems on the private sector side, which the public sector side will then step in to try to mitigate, thus making their own fiscal situation even less sustainable. And so you'll wind up in the end with an inflationary outcome. The worry that I have, in a sense, is that we know the nominal rates should go up in the environment that I'm talking about. But the central banks will become increasingly aware that if they do raise rates, that they will be causing problems, potentially, not just in the private sector, but problems to do with debt more broadly. Okay, corporates going belly up, et cetera, et cetera. That's going to be a hindrance to them doing what needs to be done. And of course, worrying about government debt is going to be another thing that's going to make them pause somewhat. In the sh- in the short term, um, people have been ratcheting up views of how much the, the Fed needs to raise rates. And some Fed officials have been saying, you know, we need to push past the 5% we've outlined in, in the dot plot. Um, you know, some other central banks in Europe and, and have also been talking about pressing ahead with rate hikes. Is that kind of talk sufficient to get at what you're you're seeing now? Or do they do they need to be more imaginative in, in pulling interest rates up? I think the market has responded too slowly to the stuff that the central banks have actually been saying for quite a while. And so I think it's good that they're coming on side, that um, the the, the need need for higher rates that the central banks have already indicated is a valid concern and the market longer run rates should move to reflect it and they're beginning to do so. I'm not so sure that they have thus far incorporated the kinds of concerns that I've been expressing to you. 
which I think likely means interest rates, short-term rates will have to rise higher than people currently anticipate. The 5.5% for the Fed, the 35 for the ECB, that may not be enough. But perhaps more important is the fact that long, medium term, at least, there will be impediments to rates going down in the way that the market still currently anticipates. So they don't expect rates to fall as rapidly as they did before. You know, that's getting into the market's consciousness. What I'm saying is this may be a longer run haul than you think. So it may not only be higher than you think, but it might be longer than you think. Right. And is that a workable is that a, going to be a workable solution, particularly for the Fed, uh, the idea of a high for long rate? If if they if they if they don't perhaps go as high as as might be needed, if they just hold rates at an elevated level for a longer period of time, is is that a a good stopgap solution? Well, this is where we get back to what I was, uh, in a certain sense, what I was just talking about, which is the impediments mm-hmm. to doing what needs to be done. In a way, you you almost ultimately get back to a kind of political question about, you know, on the one hand, on the other hand, we could do this, but there really is a price to pay for both the private sector and the public sector. So w- what's going to happen? My My recommendation, I guess, would be that monetary policy needs help from the fiscal side, that short run... Um, if there are particular difficulties in raising interest rates um, through monetary action, that perhaps some help on the fiscal side would be required. So whether it's short term, we have an inflation problem. Well, you can use fiscal to help deal with that. Is there a, a helpful way we can avoid these problems or a trend you see happening in the next year or so that is is positive, that puts the economy on a more solid solid footing? One could hope for. The increase in nominal growth in the economy doesn't come from inflation. It comes from real growth, that the economies actually grow more strongly going forward, in spite of the fact that the labor supply is less and that a lot of the capital stock is going to be obsolete in the light of a new energy future. Is it possible? Well, I don't think it's likely, but in a world of such enormous technical change and people facing up to these challenges, it may well be that there will be new uh, developments that will increase productivity quite substantially. And um, we know from history that when these changes come, you might be expecting small changes, but it turns out to be a kind of sea change. You know, like after electrification, for example, it took a long time One might to get the real benefits. One might say the same thing about digitalization. You know, we've sort of had it for the last 20 years, but maybe the full benefits are still to come. And we can hope so. I think that's a good place to, to, to wrap it. Some hope in... in uh dynamic capitalism. This has been the FedSpeak podcast by M&I Market News. Uh, if you like the show, tell a friend. Uh, hope to be with you again soon. And Bill, uh, thank you very much for being my guest. Oh, it's a pleasure.